Before we open our Bibles or do anything else, I'd like each of you to think for a moment about your body. Not anybody else's body, yours. What's it like? Tall? Short? Skinny? Maybe less skinny? Definitely not skinny? Is your body glowing with health? Is it full of aches and pains? Are your muscles rippling with energy and power? Or have they gone into hiding? Do you feel insecure about your body? Maybe even ashamed of it? Are you quite proud of it? Maybe you hardly gave your body a thought. But here are two more significant questions. What does God think of your body? He gave it to you, so what does he think about it? What was he thinking when he gave it to you? Some of of us might really like to ask him that. Then another significant question, what is your body for? Is it just a house for your brain? Is it a pleasure machine? Why did God give you your body? I would guess most of us do think about our bodies at least a little bit. But we may not have thought about those two questions. What does God think of your body and what is your body for? This morning we're picking up again in 1 Corinthians. If you're a visitor, we've been working our way through this letter that Paul wrote. And the passage we're going to read, it becomes obvious that Christians in Corinth have either never thought seriously about their bodies, or if they have, they have come to very wrong conclusions. Paul's going to help them, and he's going to help us think about your body. What's the big idea? We're going to read from chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12, down to the end of the chapter, so verse 20. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1148, and in the larger print Bibles, 1775. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two 
will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is God's word. And in these verses, Paul points to three big truths to help us understand the big idea as far as our bodies are concerned. He speaks about the resurrection, He speaks about our union with Jesus Christ. And he speaks about the fact that God's Holy Spirit lives in us. And he relates each of those truths to our bodies. We know Paul is well informed about the situation in Corinth. He knows what's going on in the church. And that includes knowing what people are saying in the church. The kind of slogans or sound bites they're using in the church. So at certain points in this letter, Paul quotes one of their sound bites and then he responds to it. We have examples of that here in verses 12 and 13. Paul quotes two Corinthian sound bites. The original language didn't have quotation marks, so they have to be supplied in English. And some translations close them slightly earlier than the NIV does, but I think the NIV has the quotation marks in the right place. The Corinthian Christians are saying, I have the right to do anything. And they're saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So putting those statements together, here is the Corinthian outlook. My body is my body, I can do what I want with it. I have the right to do anything. And the various bits of my body are obviously intended for specific functions. For example, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. So what could be wrong with using the body for the functions it was intended for? And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies because they're only temporary. They have no long-term significance because God will destroy them. They're just short-term, expandable houses for the real parts of us, our souls. So what does it matter how we use our bodies? That's the Corinthian outlook. It was the standard view held by the culture around the church. And these Christians in the church have just accepted it. And wouldn't you say this is also the standard view in our culture? It's my body. I'll use it how I want. And if I have the bodily capability to do something, how could it be wrong to do it? And what does it matter anyway? Because the body is just a collection of cells and synapses. What I do with my body has no bigger significance or meaning. I think that is the way our culture views the body. 
And it's so easy for us to go along with that. But Paul wants to challenge us. And in verse 12, he throws out two little challenges. You say, I have the right to do anything. But even if that were true, does that mean everything is good for you? Surely not everything is beneficial. Surely we all need some sort of guidance to decide what is beneficial and what's not. You say, I have the right to do anything, but even if that were true, can't some things lead you into slavery? Can't some ways of living end up mastering you so that you end up not free at all? I say those are little challenges. They're actually quite significant. But they're little in terms of our passage because Paul doesn't develop them. He just throws them out for us to think about. Isn't it true we need to come up with something a little better than I can do what I want? Isn't it actually a naive way to approach life? One that's likely to shipwreck our lives. Don't we first need to know what our bodies are for so we can then use them well? Verse 12 is intended to make us stop and think. Then in verse 13, Paul takes another Corinthian slogan, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. We'll see in a moment the Corinthians were taking that same logic about the stomach And they were applying it to other parts of their bodies. Our stomachs are for food, aren't they? And aren't our sex organs for sex? So what could be wrong with using them for sex? The logic was leading the Corinthian Christians into sexual immorality. And just so we're clear, according to the Bible, sexual immorality is anything outside of God's blueprint for sex. God's blueprint is very simple. Sex is designed by our creator for the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. That blueprint was given in the second chapter of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible refers back repeatedly to that blueprint. Paul will do it later in this passage. The blueprint given at the very beginning will always be the blueprint. God thought carefully about the blueprint before he gave it. He designed it in perfect wisdom, holiness, and love. And he ain't going to change his mind about it. That's what the Bible tells us. So according to the Bible, in the context of marriage between one man and one woman, sex is good. And the Bible celebrates it. It's not shy about it. It celebrates it. In fact, it devotes a whole book to celebrating good sex. The Song of Solomon. On the other hand, sex outside of God's blueprint, whether it's unmarried sex, adulterous sex, homosexual sex, or pretend sex, also known as using pornography, if it's outside of God's blueprint... It is sexual 
immorality. That means it's sinful as far as God is concerned and it is also harmful to us as men and women created by God. Because it's not what sex was designed for. Well, that's just by way of clarification. The point is that the Corinthians' view of their bodies is leading them into sexual immorality. Paul does mention some specific kinds of immorality. In verse 15, he mentions sex with prostitutes. And in the verses just before, in verses 9 to 11, he also mentioned adultery and homosexuality. But don't think, please, well, none of those apply to me, so this passage doesn't apply to me. No, Paul's target is all kinds of sexual immorality. He mentions that blanket term in verses 13 and verse 18. The Corinthians' attitude to their bodies is leading them away from God's blueprint. And Paul wants to correct that. And he's going to correct it, not simply by telling them that's sinful, don't do it. Paul goes further than that. He wants them to understand why sexual immorality is sinful and they shouldn't do it. And to achieve that, he helps them think properly about their bodies. The first thing he says is that the resurrection means your body matters more than you think. Look at the middle of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. The Corinthians say, it's my body. Paul says, actually, your body belongs to the Lord. The Corinthians say, my body's for sex. Paul says, Actually, your body is for the Lord who owns it. It's for whatever he says it's for. The Corinthians said, my body is only temporary. It's not truly important. Paul says, actually, your body is going to be raised and live eternally. Just like Jesus' body. Well, that does change things a bit. Our bodies belong to God and he has eternal, glorious purposes for our bodies. Maybe you thought that your body was an afterthought to God. That he only cared about your soul or your heart, your emotions and your will, those less material things. But no, the Bible says he cares about the whole you. Head to toe. Bones, muscles, and blood. Hormones, hair, and nerve endings. There is no part of you that is irrelevant or unimportant as far as God's concerned. He has eternal purposes for the whole you. He aims for you to love and serve him with every atom of your body. Maybe you're ashamed of your body, but God isn't. 
Maybe you think it's okay to abuse your body. But God doesn't. Your body matters more than you think. And the truth of the resurrection proves that. God didn't treat Jesus' body like it was irrelevant, did he? He didn't ditch Jesus' body like an old sack. He raised Jesus' body to live forever. And as God treated Jesus' body, so he will treat yours and mine. Will your resurrection body be exactly like it is now? No. It will be perfected. But it will definitely be your body. There will be continuity. Not a completely new start. In chapter 15 of this letter, Paul is going to go into that in detail. And he mentions it here to show you and I need to value our bodies more, not less. And valuing them more doesn't necessarily mean we go to the gym every night. That's okay. But truly valuing our bodies means we don't abandon them to every urge that we feel. We realize we are eternal stewards of a body that actually belongs to God. So we listen to him when he tells us what's not beneficial for our bodies. We refuse to let his body be enslaved by anything. We refuse to let his body be mastered by sexual desires or addictive chemicals or anything else. And we respect his body enough not to hand it over to be used and abused by other people. Maybe you have a low opinion of yourself. Like you're worthless. Maybe because of that you've been letting people take advantage of you sexually. That's true, then please take God at his word. You are eternally valuable to him. All of you is valuable to him. You may hate yourself, but God doesn't. Don't give your body to people who will just use you and move on. Offer your body back to God. Dedicate it to him. Follow his instruction about how to respect your body. Trust him when he says he is eternally committed to making you glorious and beautiful. Just like his son Jesus. Paul goes on in verses 15 to 18. Union with Christ shows that sexual immorality is more significant than you think. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. 
But whoever is united to the Lord is one with him in spirit. The idea of casual sex did not start in the 1960s. It was standard in first century Corinth as well. Historians tell us many of the ancient temples in the city were like function rooms or social clubs. You could hire them out for parties. And very often those party invitations announced that after the feasting, there would be prostitutes. They were the after-dinner entertainment. That was the way things worked. That was normal. And in that kind of environment, sex comes to be viewed as an insignificant thing. No more significant than a burger and chips. Food than sex. And isn't that how our culture views it? We are obsessed with sex and food, are we not? And we treat them in much the same way. So people share online photos of their dinner and their naked bodies. People come and go with sexual partners like they come and go with different restaurants. Sex is seen as a momentary experience with no lasting impact at all, just like a Big Mac. But the Bible tells us sex is way more significant than that. In verse 16, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. That's the place where we find God's blueprint for sex. And there God says sex makes you one flesh with the person you have sex with. It joins you to that person at a deep level. One writer says, what you do sexually, you do with your whole self. Not with one little bit of you. You are joined to that person with your whole self. And not just for a moment. The bond is designed to be permanent. Now we've just said that is not how our culture views sex. And what that means is people are thoughtlessly forming and breaking those bonds. Forming and breaking those significant whole person bonds that are intended to be permanent. And over time, what that does is it withers you away. It dries up your ability to have a lasting relationship. What starts out seeming like great freedom ends up in loneliness. Because each new sexual relationship means a little bit less than the last one. You've become one flesh with so many people, there's not much of you left. You're like a piece of Velcro that's been stuck together and torn apart so often it can't stick anymore. That's the significance of the one flesh statement in Genesis chapter 2. 
It's talking about bonds that are not meant to be broken. And we break them to our own harm. And as Paul quotes Genesis 2 here, we might expect him to say, so then, don't be promiscuous. Commit yourself to one person in marriage and make that your only sexual relationship. That's a proper application of Genesis chapter 2, but it is not what Paul says. He will deal with human marriage in chapter 7 of this letter. But here, he makes a different application. He says the sexual union of marriage is just a picture of an even greater union. The union between Christ and his church. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? We use the word member to mean something usually pretty weak. Like I'm a member of the debating society or the golf club. That kind of membership might mean nothing more than I go once a month and I pay a subscription every year. But here in verse 15, the word member means way, way more than that. It means an inseparable part of something. So the sense is, don't you know that your bodies are limbs and organs of Christ himself? You're tied to him that inseparably. Christ is united to his church like a husband is united to his wife. You're truly one. The bond is permanent. That's a whole person bond, body and spirit. You see that in verse 17? He's mentioned that our bodies are members of Christ. And he says in verse 17, we are one with him in spirit also. So then, how unthinkable is it for a Christian to go and take that body that belongs to Christ and use it for sexual immorality? The focus here is not just on prostitution. It's on any form of sexual immorality. The issue is, when someone who belongs to Christ gets involved in sexual immorality, they are doing violence to their bond with Christ. They're defiling the relationship they have with Christ by using their body for unfaithfulness to Christ. So for the word prostitute, we could substitute adultery or pornography or sex outside marriage. All of it is unfaithfulness to Christ. Sex according to God's blueprint is not unfaithfulness to Christ. It does not defile our relationship with him. It honors him. We'll see that in chapter 7. But the point here is that no matter how obsessed our culture might be with sex, it's the Bible that has a truly high opinion of sex. Today we are surrounded with 24-hour sexual opportunity. We carry that around in our phones. Not just porn, but hookup apps like Tinder. We have endless sexual opportunity. But as a culture, we haven't the faintest clue about the value and significance of sex. We have an endless supply and no clue what it's for. Only the Bible gives us that. 
So if you've fallen for a low-budget, pale imitation understanding of sex, it's time for you to think bigger. And the Bible gives you a bigger view of sex than you will get anywhere else. But let me be clear on what the Bible's view is. It is not that sex itself is the pinnacle of human experience. It is not that a life without sex is somehow a deficient life. Jesus Christ never had sex. Do any of us want to say his life was deficient? So the point is not that a life without sex is a deficient life. It's that sexual activity outside of God's blueprint is not just play. It's not just another leisure activity. It's destructive. It destroys you and it destroys your relationship to Jesus Christ. So please do not hear this and think, I need to get married or I'll miss out. Don't go home thinking that. What we are to take home is that sex is not for playing around with. It's much too significant to play around with. Better never to have a sexual experience of any kind than to go chasing sexual experiences outside of God's blueprint. To do that is to be unfaithful to our Savior and to harm ourselves, body and soul. That's what Paul is telling us. Look how he underlines it for us in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Take drastic, evasive action. If you can't stop looking at stuff in your phone, get rid of your phone. Chuck it. Get a dumb phone. A lot of commentators on this think that Paul may have in mind Joseph. In the Old Testament, fleeing from Potiphar's wife. We read about that in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt by his brothers and he ended up working there for a well-to-do man called Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife took a fancy to Joseph. She said to him, come to bed with me. Joseph said no. But one day when everyone else was out, she caught him by his cloak And said, come to bed with me. So Joseph said, well, let me sit on the end of your bed and we'll discuss this. I'll give you some reasons why I don't think it's a good idea. You can give me your reasons why you think it's a good idea. No, that's not what he did. Genesis says he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. He took off down the street. He fled. And if you and I are serious about our relationship with Christ, we will also be willing to literally cut and run from certain situations. Because it's obvious staying around is going to lead to sexual immorality. So instead of asking, how far can I go in this situation? Get out of the room if necessary. Get out of the car. Get out of the relationship if necessary, if you're not married to the person. And it's inevitably going that way again and again. 
Someone has said, the man or woman who wants to keep their garden tidy doesn't reserve a plot for weeds. In other words, if you and I are serious about obeying God, we won't keep a little space in our lives for a favorite sin. So if you struggle with pornography, but you think that getting accountability software or even ditching your smartphone is too big a step, that is reserving a plot for weeds. It's saying, I want to flee sin, I do, but I don't want to flee it that much. Paul goes on in verse 18. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You might wonder, well, what about gluttony and drunkenness? Don't they harm your body too? Yes, they do. But we've seen that sexual sin harms us in a unique way. Because sex is intended to create and strengthen one flesh unity. When we ignore that, it harms us in a way that other sins don't. Finally, in verses 19 to 20. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit proves you are more privileged than you think. I realize maybe some of us, maybe many of us, have lived for years with a bargain basement view of sex that we picked up from the culture around us. And so if you and I really hear what this passage is saying, it can be devastating to look back on the things we've done. We want to crawl under the chair, crawl even further down under the floor. And so we might wonder if we've ruined everything. But the purpose of this passage is not to send us down into despair. The purpose is to lead us on to new enjoyment of our relationship with Christ. New enjoyment of all that he has for us. And there's no better way to be encouraged in that than to be reminded of who we are. That's what Paul does in the final verses. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We've come across this truth a few times in recent months. It's easy for us just to skim on by it. But we need to let this sink in. You, if you're a Christian, are God's temple. You are his dwelling place. You, as you walk around, are what Solomon's temple was in the Old Testament. You don't just have God's name attached to you. God himself has come And taken up residence in you. And what does that say about you? It says you are immeasurably loved and blessed. 
Not only has God come to live in you, he first paid a high price to be able to come and live in you. The price in verse 19 was the lifeblood of God's own Son. Poured out on the cross for you. Maybe you look in the mirror and you see an unimpressive body. Maybe other people have told you how unimpressive they think you are. But God disagrees. You are precious to him. That's not just an idea. You can be sure you are precious to him because of the price he paid to make you his temple. And when you and I begin to realize that, it will make sin seem more and more alien to us. More and more unattractive. Because we are loved by God. And whatever we do, wherever we go, we take God with us there. In your bedroom, God is there with you. In your car, at school, at work, on holiday, as you look at that screen, God is there with you. You are a walking, breathing temple of God. Tom Wright says, If you are a Christian, it isn't the case that you only have dealings with the Spirit when you are praying or engaged in other more obviously religious activities. The Spirit comes to take up permanent residence. You cannot simply tell Him to take a vacation somewhere else while you go off on your own. And when you and I realize that, don't we want to honor God with our bodies? We realize that is God's big idea for our bodies. That we use them to glorify him. The blessing of having God in us brings with it a serious responsibility for us. We're not free to just do what we want with our bodies. We belong to God and all our actions in the body are to be done for his glory. And that is not a chore. It's not second best. What greater privilege could there be for us than to follow the instructions of the God of the universe? The God of the universe who has come to live in us and who only seeks our good. who sought our good all the way to death on a cross for our salvation. So as we close, let's just take a moment to consider this quietly where we sit. And here are some ways that we might want to consider it. Where we have failed in this, if we are currently failing in this, let's turn from our sin. Let's run back to our Savior for cleansing. Let's talk to God about that. Seriously. And as we look to the future, let's commit to take our body much more seriously. 
Let's commit to live out God's high and holy purposes for our body. Whatever drastic action that might mean for us. And let's never try to do that alone. God has given us one another so we can help each other. Not pretend to each other. So let's ask for help. Let's take a moment to consider how this affects us and how each of us personally needs to respond. And if you're absolutely convinced this passage doesn't apply to you directly, then you can use the time to pray for everyone else. Let's do that quietly where we sit. Now we're going to respond together. As we sing, reign in me. And if you have spoken honestly to God about wanting to honor